Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture entitled What Role Do Local Communities Play in Research? So with UCL preparing to launch a new campus on Queen Elizabeth um, Olympic Park in Stratford in September, this lunch hour lecture series brings together speakers to discuss some of the research that will be taking place at our UCLE's campus. The aim of UCL East is to bring together UCL staff and students across different faculties and disciplines to work on some of the biggest challenges facing people and the planet. As part of that ambition, all of our teaching programs at UCL East offer community engagement and research opportunities so that staff and students can have an immediate positive impact locally beyond the lab or lecture theatre. Understanding how we can work with communities is therefore vital. And towards that end, we're here today to share our experiences and reflections. Our speakers today uh, are myself, Dr. Leia Lovett, Aude Villiers-Menet, and Joseph Cook. Uh, so my name's Joe. I'm a lecturer on UCL Urban Labs MASC Global Urbanism Program, which is one of the new UCL East programs. Um, and I'm an urban and economic geographer interested in how processes of austerity and financialization are being governed and contested in London, focusing particularly on public land, public housing and social infrastructure. Leia is an artist and research fellow at the Bartlett Center of Advanced Spatial Analysis. Leia explores the uses of novel digital technologies to tell stories that connect people with their environment. She holds a PhD in urban performance and social arts practices from the Slade School of Fine Arts and takes a lead on impact, engagement and outreach activities for the Bartlett Center of Advanced Spatial Analysis. Ord is a PhD candidate at Connected Environments um, Lab at the Bartlett CASA. Ord's PhD researches what roles internet connected devices play in managing urban green spaces and monitoring their biodiversity. And last but not least, Joseph is a PhD candidate in anthropology at UCL and a research assistant at UCL's Urban Laboratory. Joseph's doctoral work focuses on the office and the measurement of work in contemporary London, having conducted a long-term ethnographic study centered around East London. A lecture for questions, assuming all of our speakers stick to time. Um, and these can be submitted at any point during the talk by going to Slido, uh, which you can just enter into your internet browser, um, and by entering the event code hashtag UCL East. And also, if you enjoy today's session, um, or even if you don't, uh, please do tune in for the next lunchtime seminar, which will be taking place on Tuesday, the 7th of June, and is entitled 10 years on from London 2012, the Paralympic legacy story. Okay, without further ado, I'll kick us off with my contribution, uh, which I've entitled, um, as you can see here, three hours of engaged urbanism. So, as the starting point of my intervention today, I'm going to invert the title of the session and think less about the role that local communities can play in research 
and dwell more upon the role academic researchers can play in the struggles of local communities for more just urban futures. I think this inversion is important from an ethical and political standpoint because it begins to situate us on the terrain of what Boaventura de Souza Santos calls non-extractivist methodologies, which are essential if by no means sufficient for ongoing processes of decolonizing universities. By non-extractivist, Santos is referring to forms of co-knowledge that emerge from processes of knowing with rather than knowing about. This is an orientation and commitment to practicing research in ways that refuses to reduce local communities to data points or to instrumentalize them as the providers of information that is then extracted and analyzed by outsider researchers according to their agendas and ambitions. Instead, non-extractivist methodologies recognize that local communities are producers of their own critical knowledge, knowledge that can challenge the academic researcher but also combine with it to produce new ways of knowing, being, and intervening in the world. And non-extractivist methodologies decenter scholarly knowledge driven by academic discourse and debates, placing university researchers in situated solidarity with community struggles. Of course, it's one thing to reframe the question, but how exactly do we engage with local struggles in non-extractivist situated and solidaristic ways. To provide some tentative and partial answers to this question, I'm going to read my own experiences of researching austerity and financialization in London and of trying to do so however imperfectly with council housing tenants through three concepts, those of resourcefulness, rearguard research and responsibility. Three R's of engaging with local struggles, if you like. But I wanna make it clear from the outset that I'm not claiming to be an expert on the practical application of these concepts, and nor am I proposing an ethical prescription of how to engage with local communities. Um, this is not supposed to be me preaching universal truths from the digital pulpit, uh, but rather reflecting on my own messy and imperfect uh, scholarship and engagement. The gap between the promise of these concepts and my own research practice is always larger than I would want it to be. So the first R is taken from what geographers Kate Driscoll Derrickson and Paul Routledge call a politics of resourcefulness or an ethics of resourcing. In practice, this can mean at least two things. First, it means that we should strive to commit the resources that are available to us as academics to the struggles that we are engaging with and learning from. This could mean our time, access to research, access to space, as well as our critical knowledge. And second, that we should design, or better yet, co-design research that seeks to ask and answer questions that non-academic collaborators tell us they want to know. For me, this has meant uh, a combination of the following. First, writing research bids with community partners and writing those partners into research, uh, into research bids by allocating them no strings attached funding to reciprocate for their support, their guidance and credibility. And I think this is one of the most concrete ways that we can help chronically underfunded community organizations. Second, paying people and especially precariously positioned people who participate in research interviews for their time. 
This isn't something that I've always done, but after doing so on a project interviewing housing activists in North London with UCL geographer Amy Horton, it's something that I plan to commit to doing in the future. Third, committing time and energy to participating in tenant organizing meetings and activities and doing research into things that tenants want to know more about. Fourth, sharing learning in open and accessible formats that tenants groups ask for. And finally, the work in progress, organizing, funding, and hosting events with community groups in university spaces. Of course, this approach to research as resourcefulness, where intellectual agendas are balanced with what communities want from you and want to know, is not always straightforward. And not least because this way of researching doesn't fit well with the existing institutional processes and pressures of the neoliberal university. Research ethics, for example, as Kevin Gillen and Jenny Pickerel put it, are still perceived as a static consideration to be completed early in any research project, rather than the dynamic, complex and ongoing dilemma that researchers really face. If halfway through a research project, long after completing the ethics form, a tenants group asks you to help design and deliver an estate survey, something you hadn't anticipated at the start of the project, what are your ethical responsibilities? Secondly, the pressures that the neoliberal university places on us as workers to be an excellent teacher, a highly capable administrator, a world-leading researcher, can sit uneasily with the slow practice of engaged non-extractivist and solidaristic research. And this tension brings me to the second R, that of becoming a rearguard researcher. Being a researcher at a university today confers a set of institutional expectations that will be world leading in our fields. This is the language of intellectual vanguardism, where the manifestation of excellence is to be found in what the Matisse anthropologist Zoe Todd has called the academic rock star, individually for, individualistically forging ahead, developing innovative research agendas, winning prestigious grants, and prodigiously publishing in high impact journals in an ever more competitive, output oriented and commodified profession. Such pressures, commingling with concerns for professional security and career advancement, can all too easily lead to extractive and exploitative relations, including within participatory and collaborative research processes. Being, being resourceful, therefore, also think, means, I think, stepping into the role of what Santos calls the rearguard researcher. That is, someone who's not obsessed with originality and authorship, who will never preach all by herself from the top of the mountain, but will work on the world's plains and hills while actively participating in relevant conversations and practices. This, I think, means precisely giving one's time and energy over to, uh, to producing research outputs in ways that are not easily comprehended by the ref and that can't be neatly packaged always into an impact case study. It means resisting the compulsion to try to be world leading and instead to focus on working incrementally and collaboratively towards new worlds. For me, this starts with producing outputs for and with local housing struggles in the form of the research briefing for communities, the PowerPoint for campaigners, the shared Excel spreadsheets, peer-reviewed public reports where your peers are those involved in the struggles, the question and answer chat on Zoom or the WhatsApp group thread.
But here it's important not to obscure the privileges that being a rearguard researcher may already presuppose. A pertinent issue here is the crisis of precarity across higher education. The proliferation of part-time temporary and insecure contracts is making slow and collaborative research a potential risk for early career scholars. I think we should ask ourselves, how can we produce the kinds of sustained, embodied and caring research or careful research that Leslie Kern and Heather McLean rightly call for if we in turn are not cared for and sustained by our universities? Of course, that's not to say precarious researchers cannot or are not rearguard researchers, or that being precarious excuses you from extractivist research. But the conditions in which we work and are able to make and maintain relationships with others matter. The rearguard researcher is not a subject position that exists outside of or that pre-exists concrete situations and relationships, but is rather a subject that comes into being through relationships of responsibility. So becoming a rearguard researcher means feeling a certain responsibility to respond to injustices and then working in solidarity with and resourcing those struggling for better futures. In Donna Haraway's phraseology, we might say that this means becoming responsible, which as I understand it implies being responsive and critically opening up possibilities with others to be able to respond. This concerns how we learn to be more responsive to local struggles in decidedly relational ways that generate new collective capacities, including by cultivating ways of knowing, of doing, making and becoming in common and rendering each other capable in the process. Again, this requires time, the time to build trust, to be present, to think and act together, to try, fail and learn collaboratively. For me, now that I have more security, if not time, I want to work on practicing responsibility by continuing to reflect on how my academic labor can make meaningful contributions to housing struggles in London. And one thing I haven't really done yet, as much as I could, I think, is leverage the academic resources I have to bring different groups together and to try to make us all more capable. So next, I'm hoping to be more deliberate in cultivating collective knowing and doing by opening up a space and time at the university that brings together different local housing struggles. Specifically, this will mean resourcing an event for learning, strategizing and organizing across struggles. The hope there is that this kind of event would bring together tenants, renters, activists and policymakers to convoke housing alternatives in London which is to say, following Max Haven and Alex Kaznamish, to dialogically imagine or call into being alternatives and develop pathways to moving towards them. That at least is the hope. And on that note, I'll stop talking. Thank you so much, Joe. I think I'm up next, is that right? That is right, yes. Excellent, I'm just gonna share my screen. Um, okay, is that visible? Yes. Um, okay, so good afternoon and uh, thanks to UCL East for the invitation to um, participate in the discussion today. And thank you, Joe, for the introduction. Um, 
actually really enjoyed your methodological and ethical framing um, and I recognize so many of the challenges that you that you've just identified for us. Um, so I'm going to be taking what I hope will be a kind of complementary tack by discussing a few projects that um, have been delivered by researchers in connected environments uh, in collaboration, particularly with young people um, from East London and various partners, including youth organisations um, and arts organisations. So all of the projects that I'm going to show you in various ways um, explore methods of remote and digital co-creation for telling underrepresented stories of place. Um, and Connected Environments is a research group based at the Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis that combines situated and socially engaged practices with information technologies, um, including Internet of Things, mixed realities and machine learning. So before I um, go on to introduce the projects, I wanted to share this slide, uh, which came out of a digital co-creation networking event um, that we ran last year with youth workers, artists, researchers, and engagement professionals, many of whom we'd been kind of working with over the previous sort of period. Um, and our conversation during that event was beautifully captured and illustrated by um, Ada Jusich. Um, and so I thought this, this kind of image that she produced can serve as a really helpful introduction to the idea of co-creation. Um, as a method that aims uh, at meaningful interactions and knowledge exchange between all participants. Um, and I'd like to draw your attention, especially to the questions on the left around who has access to space, um, whose stories of space are told, and also the question actually about what a, a digital space, sorry, about what a digital place in which you might be able to play might look like. Um, yeah, this is a, a body of work that really kind of came out as a response to the pandemic. So that was a, a guiding question as we were embarking on the following projects. So the first project I want to discuss briefly today is the Newham Youth Map. It's a map of resources for young people in Newham, um, and it's a map created by young people uh, with, with the engagement and support of uh, various youth organization partners and researchers in connected environments. Um, and it, this project very much uh, emerged as a response to the pandemic to address the needs of various partners in that moment, um, as well as uh, our own needs as researchers, because we were keen to test and build on the success of the Memory Mapper, which is an open source toolkit developed by my colleagues at CASA um, for mapping stories of place. Um, so, yeah, you can probably see uh, there are different colored dots on the map and they identify different kinds of um, activity or space. Uh, and here you can see there's uh, parks or community groups are, are one sort of type of space, but there are also arts organizations and so on. Um, so, again, an illustration by Ada, which shows how um, labor intensive this process is actually. Um, it's time and resource intensive uh, for everyone involved. Um, and obviously at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it created a kind of question about, um, yes, how to deliver services and also uh, with young people kind of no longer in full-time education within school settings, there was maybe sort of time available and, and energy for this kind of project that, that doesn't necessarily apply right now. Um, but we delivered this, work over sort of six quite long sessions um, 
and uh, it really was a case of kind of knowledge sharing. So uh, as researchers, we shared um, skills and information about the mapping toolkit and the young people sourced um, information about the various services available to them in the borough. Um, two of the participants were using screen readers to access the session. So the I suppose the kind of intensity of this process reaped really brilliant rewards for all of us because uh, we were able to kind of really deeply engage with um, questions of accessibility in a way that enabled us and encouraged us to develop a text only version um, of the site for the toolkit, uh, which now is available to kind of everyone so improves accessibility for everyone. Um, I would say another challenge that has been identified by Joe as well of this way of working um, can be around uh, sustaining engagement. So that project was delivered over a period of kind of three or four months. Um, and then there's a question of having established these relationships with partners, how do you continue um, working together? Because often while there is funding available for this kind of work, it can be quite short term and kind of relatively small amounts of money. So. Um, one way, and it, and and again, it's sort of labour intensive. But one way we've managed to do this is by piecing together small grants and working together, writing partners into those grants, um, kind of agreeing to collaborate before applying for the funding. So um, this project, Arm Eighties, was again created with um, Youth Empowerment, who was a lead partner on the Youth Map, um, and uh, young people that they work with. And it was a commission for the Royal Docks Join the Docks Festival. Um, and through this project, we delivered uh, site writing workshops. So we worked with um, our participants and collaborators to create stories of places. Um, and then we worked on uh, kind of design sessions. Uh, so in the top left hand corner of the image here, there is um, an augmented reality marker which operates similarly to a QR code, so that when uh, you go to the website listed on the page there and hover your camera over the marker, you, you should be able to hear um, one of our participants reading their spoken word poem. And these markers were located around the docks in the spaces where the young people had kind of written their words, um, so that when visitors attend that site now, um, they are able to interact with the markers and hear those voices inserted into the landscape. Um, so another project with different set of partners that I just wanted to share um, is uh, Reinvent Digital Pilot. So I suppose I wanted to include this because it's an example that was very much for us about um, developing process. Again, this project came about quite early on in the pandemic and we had already been commissioned to work with the VNA Museum of Childhood to deliver um, a, a sort of stall at a festival, uh, which was going to be an in-person festival ahead of the museum closing anyway for a two year um, refurbishment program. Uh, the, the lockdown and the pandemic meant that that uh, closure was brought forward and the festival had to be cancelled. Now we had secured funding separately from um, UCL engagement to support connected environments work within that um, space. 
to develop a VR experience. Um, and the funders were wonderfully flexible <laughs> in that moment, um, as were the museum producers. So we were able to kind of pivot quite quickly and reimagine this as a project that was about commissioning artists and working collaboratively with youth organizations to develop a kind of pilot uh, interactive design studio and experience. So um, this one in the middle that's moving now was a piece of work by Christy Minchin, um, who wanted to play with sort of 3D uh, objects and the potential for participants, users, users of this um, app to create their own kind of sculptural um, objects within the design studio. And each of the objects that you're seeing uh, was um, created through kind of a collaborative drawing online remote process with the young people who participated. So um, this project ultimately was a really, um, it, it was really an experiment for us in kind of how to work together. And I would say it's an example of a project where the the kind of main learning was in the process. Uh, the the app itself, whilst we shared it and shared it with critical, the young people shared it with critical friends. So there was some kind of sharing of this app. It was never sort of formally released as an app, um, but it did go on to inform further collaborations um, with the artists and it uh, with sorry the VNA uh, and the artists, and it also helped to establish the young ambassadors as a group that have gone on to inform how um, the VNA, uh, the young VNA as it's as it's now called, um, is working with what was their reach audience. So these were kind of the 11 to 11 to 15 year old group. So slightly older than the Museum of Childhood was formerly kind of appealing to mainly. Um, sorry. Okay, so this is just, yeah, this is uh, an example of a storyboard of the process that informed some of those images that you've just seen. So those objects on the left um, were, were drawn by the young people and then taken by Christy um, and transformed with textures into those digital objects that you've just seen. And just one more project that I'm going to share with you today. It's a slightly different way of um, working i suppose in the in the the engagement aspect has come out of a of a collaboration that's been ongoing over the past year or so um so this is the city of women london project um and it's um a project that we have worked on with reniedo lodge emma watson and rebecca solnit um who have as a sort of proposition renamed um the stations of the tube for um, significant women, non-binary people, and women-led groups. Um, and CASA's contribution to this project was to create an interactive map which shares the um, biographies and images and stories behind the names on this map. Um, and our next stage of this process, I mean, I'd invite you to go and explore it. There's, <laughs> there's so much content there. Um, so the, the website's at the bottom there, cityofwomenlondon.org. Um, but the next stage of this project that I'm really excited about um, is that we will be working with the Mulberry School um, after kind of a, a long sort of set of conversations, but we're going to be um, 
establishing intergenerational conversations to take place between the young people at the Mulberry School and some of the living people who appear on this map. Um, and those conversations will then be hosted on the map. So I think um, this is, I'm sharing this, I suppose, because it's a slightly, it's a slightly different way of, of doing the engagement um, work because it's coming, um, it's, it's sort of building on an existing project, but it shows how projects can also be used uh, sort of generatively to create opportunities um, for engagement and conversation to take place. Um, and I am at that stage going to hand over to, is it Old next? My colleague in Connected Environments. I need to stop sharing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks Leah. I think I'm, uh, I'm here. So thanks for all this example. I'm going to share my screen. Okay, great. So, yeah, so um, thanks for all joining and inviting me to this talk um, and also to Leah and, and Joe for the previous talk. So I'm going to speak a little bit um, more about the, the process or maybe like how very early career researcher start maybe to think about how to engage with communities. Um, so, oh, oh yeah, great. So. I start with that just to give you a little background of the research because um, I started my PhD one year ago and before I was trained as an engineer. And as an engineer, I haven't had really the opportunity to think or even start engaging with communities. Um, I was, a, oh, I think, oh, sorry. Um, I was a partic um, I was an engineer in vertical farming. Um, and through that, I thought it would be interesting to explore this technology for the outdoor world and how this technology can be used, one, to monitor um, and better man maintain uh, green spaces, but also secondly, to engage um, communities with nature. And this is a little bit paradoxical because when communities go outdoor, the technology is, is usually on a second um, position. So it brings some tension in a way by starting to do this, this collaboration. So I'm going to go through a few examples now. And the first example I, I take is actually the individual thinking versus the collective thinking, or why I think engaging with communities is much more a collective thinking approach. And as being as a researcher in urban environment, the urban environment is something very complex and very difficult to grasp, but also different communities and different individuals perceive this green infrastructure or this urban environment on a very different way. And the first example is actually um, a project that I participate, but that wasn't um, organized by myself. It was organized by an oh, it was organized by an alumni from UCL, John Began Hall, and it was about the perception of nature and the perception of green infrastructure into the city. And this was a very um, interesting way of engaging with communities as collective mapping. So different people, we all walk the same um, walk, but everyone had a different approach of seeing the environment. So people notice um, much more like the dead environment or the dead trees, the low maintenance. Some other pay much more attention of, of the animal, for example, the bee or the bird. And some other were much more attracted by 
just simply like um, the geometries of, of the environment. And at the end, um, it was um, a very collective mapping exercise where everyone came together and kind of shared this experience to inform um, a design practice. Um, the second is um, the Camden Highline that uh, probably some of you may be familiar with, but that I volunteered for a few events with them, um, especially with Streetscape um, that is responsible for redoing the engagement with the communities and getting into the communities and explaining why um, the idea of the Camden Highline, first of all, where it will be, and also getting like um, Involvement from them to know okay what matter for the people living around the the high line so how should the high line be designed and a few um, event which I lead was um, the youth um, um, the youth drawing event where uh, young people probably from yeah four years old to ten years old came and just play with um, with drawing about what matter and what was interesting is some children were very much about oh I definitely want a slide. Some other way about jumping stone or, or some a punt, and getting all through this drawing then back into the design and um, the design firm. Um, another one was also a walk, so walking um, along the eye line, speaking with with the local, but also getting the local on the walk and everyone actually in the neighborhood to join the walk and kind of look at what was um, the path um, that the that the high line would take. And similarly with some drawing experiment. Um, so on back of that um, two projects, there is one thing that I found very interesting is actually the time to build partnership, but also who is your partner and who will be interested in your research ID and also how to build strong relationship and when to engage. So getting back into the research of incorporating technology in nature, the first step was to engage with people already doing some activities in nature. And um, I didn't find, I don't have access to a garden. I don't necessarily have access to a community garden either, but I have the option um, being in London to engage already with, with some of these people and speak with them about, okay, does this matter for them? So here's the London National Park City. You probably heard of it. It's a network um, to make London greener, healthier and wilder and um, throughout, the year, there is some event that are organized by the 150 volunteers or ranger, as they call, um, from the London National Park City. And through that, I actually um, met um, a few London um, forest school teachers that um, are already engaged actually with young people um, and bring them to nature and do activities outdoor of the classroom. And um, I'm building a partnership actually with one of the young teacher because there was this old discussion around, okay, being outdoor, but also this technology discussion and how children sometimes being outdoor still have their phone, but how sometimes maybe it would be interesting to deploy sensor or play with sensor to explore the soil, to explore the tree, to explore the humidity of the plant and how this um, two person could collaborate and, and explore something that will inform my research, but also really inform her uh, for a school teaching, uh, teaching lesson. Um, so yeah, just a nice example of, of thinking about the network that I in London um, as a young researcher maybe. Um, and then one last point is actually the opportunities and the challenges of, um, of collaborating. Um, similarly from the London National Park City. So there is obviously the individual of collaboration working with this for a school teacher, 
but also thinking about the governing bodies of what are the regulation, what are the administrative hurdles of um, engagement. And the last example, I am um, also thinking about with communities and um, outside of communities, and this is actually UCL communities. It was a um, gardening activity that happened um, two weeks ago. And this is a very nice example of engaging with UCL community, mostly um, UCL students, but also understanding that um, doing a project requires a lot of talk with um, the administrative bodies of, of UCL and thinking about, okay, who has ownership of it, who is responsible for, for security and health issue, um, and how will that um, prosper in the long time. Um, this is also an example that I found um, really interesting because this is um, also thinking of, of long-term process and long-term process of maintenance and how it, this um, project is actually maybe the first step in deploying some of these sensors to sense the environment and in making something happening in, in the wider in the wider background. So the key takeaway from what I take um, from this first year of, of PhD, but also maybe this first encounter with trying to engage with collaborative um, uh, communities are actually the four points that I think Joe kind of summarized um, very nicely with um, academic reference and books reference, and they are also already illustrated. Um, but I think the first is like the why, when, and who, why, why engaging, uh, why, why it will inform the research, but also when, um, earlier, later, um, when, thinking of the when and, and with who. So I, I showed the example of the London National Park City. Uh, where do you find your community and, and who do you want actually um, being involved with? Then um, inform and inspire, that was also mentioned by, by Leah about this um, long-term perspective of, of research is not only getting something um, from a community, but it's really collaborating with them um, and having this kind of um, co-working experience of um, informing something, but also inspiring so that people doesn't leave after the first workshop you organize, but stay longer and maybe bring some of their friends with. Um, I think this third point was also particularly um, valuable for me, but it was listened with an open mind maybe easy because I'm still refining my research question um, and I really take on a lot of, of, um, of ideas and, and thought that the community have, but I think it's, it's something um, useful to have when you go as a researcher, um, not having a closed mind um, experience. And then thinking long-term, it takes time to build relationship um, and it takes time also to find the right partner. So thinking of a longer term um, was probably something that um, was nice for me to already join maybe the National Park City and other network um, over the course of the last year. So yeah, that's about it for me. Um, thanks a lot for listening. And I will pass um, to Joseph now that will probably also speak a little bit about example of work and work that we did together engaging community. So go, go ahead, Joseph. So thank you very much to Aud and Joe and Leah. Uh, so I'm Joseph Cook and I'm a PhD student with uh, the Anthropology Department here at UCL and also an affiliated researcher within UCL's Urban Laboratory. I want to talk about anthropology first. Often when hearing the word anthropology, most people will think of perhaps Margaret Mead's research in Polynesia or one of a myriad researchers traveling great distances to complete fieldwork. 
much of which is now considered highly problematic, with communities who are often the subject of research rather than party to it. Rethink the, rethinking the disciplines, uh, methods, forms of engagement, and efforts to share output are key within discussions on how we can decolonialize anthropology as a discipline and carry out ethnographic research that is more collaborative than is extractive. There is though an increasing proportion of anthropologists conducting research within their local communities, sometimes called doing anthropology at home. But conducting research within local communities isn't only an opportunity for UCL to give back, but also for UCL to learn. For example, conducting research alongside a community rather than simply on it can mean that your interlocutors can also become your critics, engaging meaningfully with the research output and therefore pushing it to become better and more real. I, for example, am currently embarking on a small project looking at healthcare access for boat dwellers of no fixed address across London. Preliminary discussions with community stakeholders has already led to a shift in the project's goals uh, towards outputs that would be most aligned to having a genuine real world impact and avoid academic research being turned into a leaflet that simply ends up in the bin. Despite often being experts in the nuances of political and social movements across the world, it isn't unusual for the results of a UK election or referendum to leave myself and colleagues in a state of shock and surprise, suggesting that our understanding of those closer to home can sometimes be a bit of a blind spot. UCL is a global university, yes, but its tagline states that it is London's global university. I think it is vital that we constantly ask, what is London about this place? Are we simply situated within the city or a st strongly rooted part of it? Engaging with local communities can help with this rooting. And local communities, if engaged with research in a meaningful and not just uh, tokenistic sense, can help evangelize UCL's research output, further helping our work expand beyond the academy. Avoiding a tokenistic approach to community engagement, something I see happening a lot within housing development projects, for example, is key here. Working with communities needs to be done not for the purpose of box ticking, but due to understanding that it actually creates better research and therefore better outputs. I want to talk briefly now about some work I've been doing with UCL's Urban Laboratory. During the spring, I coordinated UCL's Urban Labs Urban Walk series. Open to the public, we held a series of seven walking tours throughout East London, each following a different route, each based on a different project, and each led by a different expert in a completely different field, the majority of whom were not academics. Following the extended period of online events during COVID lockdowns, we were particularly keen to get out and explore the city, engaging with local experts to learn more about the communities that surround UCL East. This included a great tour by the up and coming author, Ashley Hickson Lovance, using his experience as a born and bred Hackneyite to talk us through the changes he has seen firsthand in both the borough's built environment and its population. Another was led by the environmental barrister and activist, Paul Powsland taking us on a tour of East London's river roading, discussing the work that he and other locals have been undertaking to try and restore and reopen the river. From guerrilla gardening to squatting, taking polluters to court and fighting developers, engaging with local communities can not only expand what we think of urbanism to be, 
but can help us as acad academics get a sense of what is or is not possible on the ground. One of our work walks, organized by Ord, who spoke earlier, took us to the Pudding Mill allotments, located just a few hundred yards from UCL East. And in this picture here, you can see the two main UCL East um, buildings in the background there. Due to open later this year, a historic community already relocated once due to Olympic reconstruction. Those at the allotments find their fruit and veg under threat from developments on their southern edge. Thankfully, UCL East is on the northwest edge. And that these developments on the southern edge threaten to block off their sunlight and therefore restrict, restrict their ability to grow. In carrying on our conversation with, with those at Pudding Mill, it is clear that, that this is the kind of community for which UCL could engage for mutual benefit. They're looking for people to gather evidence for their case and for increasingly uh, uh, for getting increased publicity for their cause. And the site could prove hugely fruitful for those looking to create research with real benefits right on UCL East's doorstep. And it is the, the inclusion of these kinds of um, local voices that UCL's urban researchers hope to develop a dialogue with at the new Urban Room and Memory Workshop to be located at UCL East's Pool Street West building. By encouraging local communities into UCL and getting more researchers out and about, including students in new courses such as the MASC in Global Ur Urbanism, which includes a London studio pathway, UCL can aim not to be an island surrounded by local communities, but one of a number of communities that blur and intersect with one another. Thank you. Okay, brilliant. Um, yeah, thanks so much to, uh, to all our speakers, uh, of course, including myself, but uh, mostly to Joseph, Ord and Leah. Um, yeah, really, really great. Um, really great talks. And I've already learned a huge amount, including that I need to improve my PowerPoint slide game uh, in order to, to keep up with, with everyone here. Um, so we haven't had too many questions on the Slido. Um, that could be for one of two reasons. One, it could be that people aren't familiar with Slido, or it could be that we were all so comprehensive that people don't have any questions. Um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to guess it's probably that maybe people don't have too much um, familiarity with Slido. But if you don't, all you need to do is type in sli.do um, into your browser, and then you'll be able to type in UCL East as the hashtag, and that'll take you to the slider where questions are. Um, but we've had some questions, um, which I will now have a look at. Um, so first question, um, I work for a team whose aim is to engage more underserved groups in clinical research. What do you think the best way of engaging with those communities is? Have you come across any particular challenges when trying to engage with particular groups. So does anyone? I'm happy to speak to that a little. Um, um, I cannot, I kind of can't um, overstate how essential having, it obviously depends who, which groups you're trying to act, uh, kind of engage specifically, but I can't overstate how um, essential it's been across all my work uh, to have really good partners who already have established relationships. Um, 
you know, however long your research project is, the chances are it, it's a kind of limited length of time and really meaningful relationships can take years to develop. Um, and that like there are many reasons why we've worked with youth organizations, not directly with young people. Um, you know, youth organizations have built up trust with the young people they work with. They give us a sort of layer of accountability. Um, between sort of the researchers and the young people so they were holding communications for us um it also um speaking to uh joe your point about how one pays for people to part you know making sure that we're sort of funding people's time for participation in projects like this um it enables a kind of route for that to happen through so we were able to uh divert funding to the youth organizations who are delivering the sort of long-term work for the young people. So there's a kind of equality of access in that way too. Um, you know, if you're looking at working with older groups, um, I'm working on another project around kind of urban heat waves um, and ended up forming partnerships with the, like with the Red Cross and um, Thames Ward community um, project, which is a sort of local community group. So I'd say it really is about Kind of find the people that are already working with the people that you want to work with and then find out what's in it for all of you so that so that what you're talking about is kind of shared the sort of intersection of shared need um and how how whatever project you're doing can really genuinely value or benefit um everyone involved yeah wonderful thank you leah um another kind of related question i think um, from someone on Slido, which is, how do you gain trust with community groups who don't want to work with an institution like UCL, i.e. establishing that first link or approaching them cold? Who would like to offer some thoughts on that? Yes, Joseph. Uh, yeah, I can talk a bit about that in relation to um... This project I'm doing at the moment with with voters with no fixed address, in that that is a community that um, is constantly being approached by researchers of all kinds um, and journalists that want to present their lifestyle as sort of a glamorous way to escape renting. Um, so they've got a sort of um, quite a uh, uh, um, you know quite nervous about engaging with researchers. Um, so the way I've approached that is is you know, to add on to what Leah was saying, was to, you know, approach some other organizations, things like in my case, um, the Waterways Chaplaincy and um, a, a sort of travelers um, support network, um, and to speak to them first to, to discuss, you know, what sort of output can I produce as a researcher that is of genuine benefit to people? So that I'm not just approaching people and saying, hi, I'm a researcher, I want to come and study you for my own benefit. Um, going to people and saying, you know, this is a real problem that I've understood in collaboration with people you know. I'm trying to produce this output that I think is of use to you. Um, and I find then that once you've demonstrated that, you know, you have actually thought about the person, you know, you're not just some, you're not just arriving out of nowhere and just being extracted, then people are much more willing to, to engage. Yeah, great. I mean, I think there's definitely that that question of establishing trust through uh, letting people know what might be in it for them, um, as well as just, you know, your own research agendas being pushed to the forefront. Um, excellent. 
Um, we've had, oh, I think some of these questions are disappearing. Okay, here we go. Um, so this is a question which I think uh, is based on something that I said. Uh, so how can researchers strike a balance between rightly paying research informants who are giving up their valuable time and avoiding coercing people to engaging with our work? Um, yeah, which I think is a really interesting and important question and one which is raised in the, the kind of literatures on research ethics and these concerns around paying people. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think there is a balance between those two kind of contending forces. Um, I would probably always come down stronger on that side of saying that the, the importance of paying people for their time is probably outweighs the, the risk of coercing people into engaging with your work and that the risk of coercing people into engaging with your work is a risk that can be managed. Um, and I think it's a risk that can be managed through um, the kinds of open and frank conversations we should be having researchers at the beginning of a research um, interview, for example, which is to set out, um, you know, the terms of the interview, the kind of the expectations, what the what the, uh, the interviewee can um, expect of the researcher, and to kind of really confirm what the payment is for. And the payment is to recognize people are spending time on your research project and are giving over their valuable time. It's not a payment for information. It's not a payment for you know, the divulgence of, um, of information that is, that is rightfully theirs. And, and so to really insist, you can stop this interview at any time you want. You don't have to ask uh, answer the questions that I'm answering, asking you, um, or, you know, you don't have to divulge information that you, you are not comfortable in, in uh, divulging. So being really, really clear, I think, about what that payment is for is important. Um, I mean, one, one paper that I would just sort of give a shout out is um, a paper called, Should We Pay Research Participants? Question uh, mark, which was written by Rosalie Warnock, Faith Taylor and Amy Horton, um, and is an open access paper um, in the Royal Geographical Society's journal area. That's should we pay research participants? And that goes through the, the ethics of paying research participants and makes a kind of a case for paying um, research participants based on a feminist ethics of care. So well worth looking at that, I think. Could I just pick up on that as well? I think it does also probably depend on the kind of nature of your research project. There is obviously a very big difference between um, paying partners to co-create an artistic product as, I, as I've been doing with my colleagues, um, uh, where that really is kind of shared intellectual property in a sense, and everyone is collaborating to produce a kind of original work together um, and paying people to, I don't know, divulge, as you were saying there, uh, kind of in response to interviews, potentially, um, I don't know, int intimate um, kind of information about themselves or personal information. I think uh, it has to be on a kind of case by case basis, I would say. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Leah. Um, okay, great. So we don't have any more questions in the Slido. So unless any of the panelists want to um, add anything else, I will suggest that we wrap up today's session. Um, and just to confirm, um, again, um, if you enjoyed today's session, and hopefully you did, please do tune in next uh, Tuesday on the 7th of June 
um, for our next lunchtime seminar, um, which is entitled 10 Years On from London 2012, The Paralympic Legacy Story. Um, and a very big thank you also um, to Emma Hart for organizing today's um, talk and for bringing us all together and convening us, um, and to um, Matt um, Ocott as well for um, being um, on top of all the technology that is required to live stream these sessions, uh, which is something that um, I would have been completely incapable of doing on my own. Um, so yes, having said that, thank you very much for joining us. Um, do look out for um, UCLE's um, ongoing work and, and, and visit the campus if you're interested. Um, come and join us. Um, and yes, thank you very much. <laughs>